All right, let's begin by opening our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. We'll be looking at numerous passages this morning regarding the topic of baptism. But I want to start here because I think this is an important precedent to consider. 1 John 5 verse 1 The Apostle John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, in this text, John is telling us that true believers will be uniquely marked out from the lost. They'll be marked out by their faith in Christ as the Son of God, their Messiah. They'll be marked out by their love for God. And they'll be marked out by their obedience to his commands. Now, if you look throughout the New Testament, there's over a thousand commands given to us as Christians. More than the Old Testament stipulates. There's an abundance of commands given to Christ's followers here that we could search out and look at. But the first and foremost commands that we are called to obey are given to us in Matthew 28, 19. I know you know this passage, but go there with me to the Great Commission passage, Matthew 28, 19. Here we find Jesus commissioning all those who would follow him. And he gives us this commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, obviously, within this great commission to make disciples and teach them to observe Christ's commands, there is one command that stands out. It's obvious an active call to obedience here to baptism is stipulated in this passage. The commandment of water baptism is very clearly ordained and commanded by God here. And it's also in itself a teaching tool that points to the power of Christ and the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is I want to spend some time considering why this command was given here. Understanding this, this command is, I think, a critical part of discipling other people. So I want to help inform you in that process as well. The first command that we see this is given to us here is one that is often neglected even in our disciple making. And we want to we want to resolve that, fix that problem. But it's given here for some very important reasons. One of the primary reasons that baptism is given to us here as a command at the very beginning is to help us identify who Christ's disciples truly are. They'll be marked out by immediate obedience to him as their Lord and Savior. And when this commandment is actually put into application and it's properly understood, it helps us to illustrate something glorious and God exalting. I don't want us to come to this baptismal service this month thinking it's just another ritual that we go through as Christians. I want us to come amazed by the gospel that we see put on display through the testimony of those who have been saved by God's grace. This this commandment helps illustrate something very important to us. 
It illustrates an act of obedience that testifies to our conversion and our submission to Christ as our Lord and master. And so it's important that we understand this. It's important because water baptism symbolizes that we are now fully united to Christ by his work alone. This is what it's telling everyone that sees you make this testimony. And so I think if you understand the water baptism part of this correctly, you'll have a greater appreciation of the gospel that you're testifying to. Now, when you understand that you're fully united in Christ, that sort of begs the question of how does water baptism display that? Well, if you understand the biblical mode of water baptism, it's very clear. You are immersed into Christ at conversion, at regeneration. Hence, water baptism then is by immersion. That is the biblical mode of baptism that testifies to your unity in Christ, your union with Jesus that you're displaying. And that is a testimony, I think, a very clear testimony of the gospel. Immersion is important, saints. I know you know that, but we are reformed in our soteriology. But we run in the circles with a lot of people who are reformed also, but have a different mode of baptism. And I want you to be equipped and understand the importance of immersion as the mode that testifies to the power and the work of Christ in our salvation. Now, the word baptize, we I think all probably here know, is a transliteration of a Greek word, baptizo. And it simply means to immerse or submerge. Now, I I print T-shirts for a living, and I do all kinds of T-shirts. I print white T-shirts, black T-shirts, red T-shirts, tie-dye T-shirts. And in my mind, an infant baptism is kind of like a tie-dye T-shirt. It's spotted. It doesn't cover the whole garment. It does not make a full picture of the color that it needs to actually display. But if you understand the textile terminology that's being used here in the time period in which we see it displayed in the New Testament, this is what we would call a textile phrase, immerse. They would take a garment and they would plunge it underneath the dye completely until the entire garment has been stained the color by which they have designed it. So that's what immersion represents, a complete infiltration, a complete unity of color, if you will, throughout the whole garment. So that's why we emphasize that this is the biblical mode. It's displaying something. You're not partially into Christ or partially in the church. You're all the way into Christ. And your baptism displays that. And the mode there is also important then. It's important to know this because I think it helps you understand that God has given us this mode to display the fullness of our salvation. Not a sprinkling of it. Not a partial payment of it. But the fullness of being united into Christ. Now, the mode of baptism that's blessed by God and illustrated in the book of Acts was immersion. I'm going to try to prove that to you a little bit this morning. So go with me to Mark. You're already probably in Matthew. Go to Mark chapter 1. The mode of baptism, I think, is blessed here by God in Christ's baptism. When Christ came to be baptized by John the Baptist, he came to unite himself with us as our substitute. He's coming to receive this baptism for us, if you will. He's coming in and 
embracing this and the way in which it's done, I think, is essentially important to us. Now, look at Mark 1, 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That gives you a little hint. It's in the Jordan in which he is baptized. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So he came up out of the water. He was fully immersed, displaying that he was taking on this place of a substitute and taking our place that we deserve to have. We needed to have we needed to be baptized for the remission of our sins. He's being baptized for repentance here in our place. He was fully immersed, I believe. It's an interesting verse. I love verse 10 for many reasons, aside from baptism. He saw the heavens being torn open. That word is really interesting to me. It's the word schizo, schism, a ripping apart. When Christ was obedient in this act, the very fabric of heaven was ripped apart for God, the Father and the Holy Spirit to come down and bless him in this act of obedience. So I think the mode is important to us to look at. It's also illustrated for us in Acts, in Acts chapter 8. We'll spend a lot of time in Acts this morning. But in Acts 8, 34, we see it illustrated with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a copy of the scroll of Isaiah 53 in particular. And the eunuch said in verse 34 to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else. Then notice this. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, there's something important in this that I want to allude to now that we'll get to more detail later. Notice what comes first in the Ethiopian's baptism. The proclamation of the gospel. And his response to the gospel is illustrated in what happens next. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. That's a significant phrase, a large body of water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized, immersed? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And notice they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, I think it's significant that we have this the the explanation of going down into and coming up out of. I don't think that that's just superfluous. I think that's put there for a very intended reason. So we understand this act of obedience was a mode that God had ordained in such a way that it would testify To this act that is being displayed of what Christ has done for us in uniting us to himself fully, putting us completely in him. Now, as I study this and and listen, I have read probably every commentary I can from the Presbyterian perspective on this issue. And one particular guy that stands out and this guy's name is John Calvin. We're probably all familiar with John Calvin. He was an infant baptizer, right? But here's a fun fact about baptism from John Calvin himself, because he was also a faithful exegete. He said this, the word baptized means 
to immerse. And it is certain that immersion was the practice of the early New Testament church. I'm glad he agrees with us, at least exegetically, not practically, but exegetically. He agreed. And I think it's important for us to understand this, this weightiness of this image that we see in immersion. Because it really portrays being completely immersed into Christ. It's not this ritual that we go through that doesn't have any kind of meaning. There's a purpose in this. I believe the mode of baptism in Scripture is important because it was designed to help paint an outward picture of what God has done already to us inwardly or spiritually at conversion. It is the outward display, manifestation, if you will, of what's already taken place inside of the converted Christian. I think you can see that really clearly in Romans. Go to Romans 6 with me. And I want those who are going to be baptized to really consider these things this morning and, and let these things roll around in your mind for the next two weeks and to really be amazed by what you are allowed and called to do for the glory of God in baptism. We see this outward picture, baptism, displaying something that's inwardly already transpired, already taken place. And Romans 6, 3 to 11, I think helps us to see that. Here the Apostle Paul shows us this very picture. Let me read this text to you. Now, you're going to have to really bear with me here because as I studied this, there's some stuff that I found out about this that just blows my mind. And I would love to unpack it all, but I can't. So I might give you a, a hint of what it is, though. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So all those who have been immersed into Christ and they're they're united to Christ by faith in his work. You're also being baptized into his death because you believe that Jesus on the cross was dying in your place, in your stead. Your sins were imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to you. So, in other words, he's being baptized He's being baptized in this wrath of God that you and I deserved at the cross. And we were there with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, part of Paul's purpose for writing this here is he's going to make an argument. Should we go on and sin because we're under grace? May it never be. Because look, you died to sin with Christ at the cross. Now the life of Christ is at work in you. You're no longer under the bondage of sin and slavery to sin. You've been set free to live a life that magnifies the power that is at work in you that converted you. What I learned as I studied this it's what I do want to share just a hint of today. This is an amazing eschatological truth that's being displayed in our conversion. Think about this. The power of the age to come. The full resurrection of our bodies and soul, right, brought into God's presence. The power of the age to come has come now in our conversion in this present age. You're getting a glimpse at your resurrection in your conversion, you have been raised with Christ. You have resurrection power reigning in you. It's Christ who reigns in you. There is no excuse for sin. We have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. 
The power of the age to come has penetrated this present age in your conversion. And you get to testify to it in your baptism. Your baptism is giving us a glimpse of the glory to come. You are saying, I am resurrected with Christ. This is the first resurrection. Your body will to be resurrected one day in the future, in the age to come. And verse five says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Saints, when you are being baptized, this is what you're testifying to, to those who witness it. You're saying, I am no longer a slave to sin. I am a slave to Christ. I'm his fully immersed in him, fully empowered by him. Yes, I struggle with sin. Yes, it'll be a battle to the day that my body is made new. But here's what I know. I am no longer a slave. I am a son. I'm a daughter. Verse seven. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The penalty has already been paid by Jesus for your sins. You're free now. You're not free to sin. You're free from sin. You're free to glorify God and obey his commands. You're free to rejoice in the truth and to testify to it in your actions. Because he says this in verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, my penalty fell on him. His righteousness came to me by imputation. We believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what you're testifying to in your baptism. Paul's showing us here that this is what's taking place inwardly in your soul. You spiritually have been raised to newness of life in Christ because you were with him at the cross and he died your death and he rose to declare your justification. You're immersed fully into Christ at conversion here. That's what you're displaying. You're converted by God's grace through faith in what Christ has done, his death, his resurrection. And that's that's what we are outwardly testifying to in our immersion into water baptism. Here's what it does. It's a great word picture that illustrates what's taking place inside of us. We go under the water to symbolize that we died with Christ at the cross. And we rise out of the water to symbolize that we have been raised or resurrected with Christ to live a new life for his glory and for his praise. And in doing this, we're publicly confessing that we are going to live our resurrected life now devoted fully to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a serious act of obedience that honors Christ. Please feel the weightiness of this. And if you have been baptized and you feel distant, you feel distracted, you feel conflicted because of your sins. Look at this and remember what God has done to unite you to himself and reconcile your account. You have been immersed into Christ through his death, 
his burial, his resurrection. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for you. Rise and walk in newness of life. Resurrected life is at work in you. Rest in it. Rejoice in it. Testify to it. That's what baptism does. It testifies to it. Testifies that you're resting in it. Your baptism symbolizes your new condition and your new desire to live it out as his new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works. Look at Second Corinthians five. I have to say this to understanding obedience in baptism eliminates easy believism. If you fully understand this. You fully understand that you're making a public confession and commitment that you have been saved by God's grace through Christ's atoning work and that you will live the rest of your days for the glory of God. That's not easy believism. That's going to be tough. There'll be many trials and temptations to take you off that path. But if you have been immersed into Christ, Christ will put you back on the path through discipline and through love. Second Corinthians five seventeen. This is what your baptism is symbolizing, your your new desire to live out the life that you've been given as new creations. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, doesn't say he might be, he could be or he will be. It says he is a new creation. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is not a cliche in verse 21. That's a confession and a commitment. We have been brought into union with Christ because he died our death that we deserve. He rose to give us the life that only he could earn. And he brings us now so that we can testify to it and live in a way that magnifies the righteousness of God at work in us. Saints, just think about this. In your baptism, you are testifying that the God and creator, the holy and righteous king, has saw your sin and your guilt and said, you are condemned, but I will send my son to take your place. And Christ willingly comes to receive the penalty we deserve. And he receives that penalty in its fullness, the full cup of wrath poured out on him that you deserve to nail. And then God reconciled your account. He brought you into adoption as sons and daughters. Now you get to testify to it for the rest of eternity. To live a righteous life is to rejoice in the gospel. To testify to it in baptism is a commitment to do this. And you're being held accountable by all those who see it and hear it. Look at Galatians. Galatians 2 helps to see our new condition And also understand that we have now in Christ this resurrected life, this this new life to to live out a life as this new creation, testifying to his power and the sufficiency of his atonement here. This is what Paul says in chapter two, verse 20. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live or ego who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What, what drives Paul to obedience? Joy over regeneration. What drives Paul to live a life that honors God? Thankfulness for his salvation. This is what should drive you to baptism. You can't get the cart before the horse, though. Baptism comes as a result of salvation. Salvation comes first. Baptism follows. You can be baptized and just get wet. But when you've been united to Christ by faith in his accomplishments, your baptism means something of eternal value. It testifies to the work that Christ has accomplished in your place. It's a public confession. It's a commitment. That's what we need to keep in mind. And saints, it's not a commitment and a public confession we do one time. It's a commitment to continue on as his disciples in obedience to him and the confession we make. And if that's the case, if it's something that we we testify to after conversion, that means obviously that baptism is for Believers only. Believers only. It has to be that way because it's an act of obedience that follows regeneration, conversion, a new heart. It doesn't precede it. It doesn't obtain it. Baptism will not save you. It's incapable. Only Jesus can save you by God's grace through faith in what he has accomplished in your place. Baptism is not a way to gain salvation, nor is it a way to gain access into the covenant community, the church. It can't be either of those because both faith in Christ and then the obedience that follows is a gift from God. Faith in Christ alone is what saves us as faith in Christ alone that places us in the body of Christ, the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 to see that baptism can't do this only God can do this by his grace through Christ's accomplishment this is how we're saved this is how we're brought into the body of Christ beginning there in verse 8 for by grace God's unmerited favor undeserved favor you have been rescued so tear saved through faith alone I would add It's implied. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is salvation? Both the grace and the faith. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not a result of your baptism because you would boast. It's it's not a result of anything that you could do that would actually make you inherit the blessings of the church either. You have to understand something. Look at verse... uh, 12 to see this verse 13 rather baptism doesn't save you and baptism doesn't give you access into the body of Christ either but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ so how we brought in who are far off is it by our works by our sprinkling by our infant baptism is it by any of those means no It's by the blood of Christ, faith in Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in the in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. There's that union. One new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. That's the church through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the oikos of God, the household of faith, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So how do we get into the covenant community? Is it by baptism? Is it by any works? No, neither is salvation. Salvation and both the union that we have in the body come by God's grace through faith in what Christ has accomplished. So let me be clear. No one is saved or made a member of Christ's church because they are baptized. Am I clear enough on that? But, but everyone who is saved will long to testify to their salvation and their union with Christ and his body through baptism. That's what the followers of Christ do. It's an act of obedience that's driven by joy for their salvation. So you're not saved or you're not brought into the church through baptism. But if you are saved, you will want to testify to this great salvation and this new union you have with Jesus and his body, his bride. And you'll do that through baptism. The first act of obedience you should express as a new Christian. So let me say this, thinking about what we're about to do coming up this month. I hope that our upcoming baptisms serve you who are baptized as a reminder, as a refresher of your own confession and your own commitments. I pray this, this service will cause us to all examine ourselves, examine our confession of faith in Christ and this public commitment that we made there on that day to his lordship that we testified to in our baptism. I hope that that's what is the result of watching others be baptized will be. It seems like it's easy for us to lose our zeal these days. It's easy for us, even in reform circles, to think theologically, but not worshipfully, not doxologically. When you see a baptism take place in a biblical church, testifying to the glorious gospel of Christ, it should cause your hearts to rejoice. And it should cause you to examine your lack of joy that you've been expressing because you've let the world, the devil, temptations creep in. I fear that's happened here. I fear that happens with all of us as Christians. We let our confession and commitment grow cold at times. It happened to Timothy. So if you feel like your confession is lacking, you made a great confession early on. You made a great commitment early on, but your life is not reflecting that great confession and commitment now currently. If you feel like that today, if you feel discouraged or disgusted by your lack of obedience and your lack of joy, then I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. Let this baptismal service serve as an act of God's kindness to you coming up 
to sanctify your hearts. Ask the Lord to renew your faith. Revive your commitment that you once made when you were freshly amazed by God's forgiving grace in Christ. How easy for us to let our first love grow cold. We can be analytical, we can be theological, but sometimes we're just not, as I said, doxological. We're not worshipful. Listen, truth matters because it points to Jesus. And if you can't get excited about that, then you're looking at truth the wrong way. I'm going to try to help you stoke up those coals a little bit by looking at some things I think that are important to equip you in the stoking of this fire in your soul Stoking the coals of your confession and commitment. And I want to also, in doing that, I think, clear up any errant teaching on the subject of baptism. So as I've said, we need to understand why we're baptized and who should be baptized. So I want you to see why only Christians, only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be baptized. And I want you to see why it should amaze us that we're allowed to actually testify to this. So let's begin by looking at the first account of baptism we find in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It's Peter preaching. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's another way of saying convicted. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Notice he preaches Christ. He doesn't have to beg for a profession. He doesn't have to beg for someone to walk an aisle. They hear the gospel. They're cut to the heart and they ask him, what must we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this passage, just so you know, in case you're not aware, this passage is often abused and misunderstood. It's often abused and misunderstood by those who focus in on one word in verse 38 to build an entire doctrine. We see the Church of Christ do this. We see other isms do this. But the word is actually an important word because it actually does articulate what God has consistently given us about baptism in the New Testament. If, if you are saved because of your baptism, that's how you get forgiveness of sins. We got a major problem with Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, you're saved through faith alone. We don't have a problem with that, though. It's not even a paradox. They're saying the same thing. The word in verse 38 that causes all the confusion is the word ice, E-I-S in Greek. It's the word for. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Contextually, that should be translated because of. The word for should be translated because of. Peter's saying that baptism takes place because of the forgiveness of your sins or in response to the remission of your sins based on what Christ has done, who he is. See, in, in baptism, we're, we're publicly and joyfully declaring this. We're declaring that by God's grace, all of our sins have been washed away by faith in Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
And as a result of that, we want to act in obedience to our now Lord and Savior. It doesn't precede that, though. Salvation comes first. Obedience follows because of the forgiveness of our sins. Think about it practically for a second. If you had done wrong to me and I forgave you, you would then refer to me and come to me and act toward me in a different manner because of my forgiveness. You could try to butter me up and try to schmooze me all you want before I give it, and it's not going to cut it. So it's not because you are schmoozing that I forgive you. But you come to me and you love to talk and fellowship and rejoice with me because of my forgiveness that I granted you. That's what we're saying here. Your sins have been washed away and because of that, be baptized to testify to it. To understand, look at Titus. You see this a little bit clearer, I think. Understand what God is trying to display here in our baptism. It's not saying this is the means to be saved. He's saying this is the result. It's testifying to the result of your salvation. You're now going to actively act in obedience to Christ out of a joyful heart. In Titus 3, we see something important regarding this. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, that's how you're declared right before God, by his grace, through faith in Christ, our Savior, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us, not on the basis of anything we have done or even would do. He saved us out of his mercy. By washing us clean, by regenerating us through the work of Christ. And in response to that, we will, as Christians, be immediately obedient to our Lord and Savior. That's what Peter's trying to say as well. So when we come to thinking about this, we think about believer's baptism. I think it's important that we understand this is what you're confessing. You're confessing your faith in Christ You're confessing that you now are identifying with Christ and not just with his death and his his life, but with his resurrection. You're identifying with his victory over your sins. You're not trying to obtain victory apart from that. You're rejoicing in his victory because of that. You just want to testify to it when you act in obedience. So in thinking that way, every baptism then should be it should truly be. Truly be a joyful testimony to what God has done for us in Christ and the power of his all-sufficient sacrifice. That's the pattern throughout the New Testament. I found it interesting in studying this this week that every baptism in the New Testament is carried out as a joyful and willing act of obedience to response to God's saving work in Christ. There's not one baptism I can find that they tell them that they need to be baptized. I'm like, "Eh, let me hold off a little bit. I'm not sure I'm ready. When people are truly converted, this is their desire. They don't have to go grudgingly. They want to come willingly. 
Again, that's a sign of one who has been converted. It also means they were able to understand the gospel and the implications of Christ's lordship as well. But they're responding out of joy. Let me show you some places that illustrate that for us in the New Testament. I want you to notice not only how we see how you should approach baptism as a mode anyway, by immersion, but we also see that what it represents throughout Scripture, it represents our salvation and our union with Christ. But we see in the passages I'm going to give you now who should be baptized and when it should take place. Stay in Acts or go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. I'm going to read this. I'm going to ask you a question to consider. Who should be baptized? Who were baptized in this passage? Verse 39. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you, for your children and all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And many others, many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. And notice verse 42. They who are the they those who received the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So according to the passage that's most often misrepresenting baptism, what does it actually tell us about baptism here? Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Only those who have received the message that Peter proclaimed. They in turn were the ones who were baptized after having received the gospel. They acted in obedience through regeneration power to respond to the gospel in obedience And then they devoted themselves to doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking bread. After hearing it, they were converted. That's the point. They were converted and it was made evident through their submission to Christ in baptism. Now, here's here's the dilemma for the Presbyterian brothers and sisters out there. Infants can't do this. They don't have the intellectual power, ability to actively obey They don't have the ability to initially willingly believe. They have to have their minds changed. We can argue with them about these things a lot. But the point is, in the New Testament, you're not going to find infant baptism mentioned anywhere. You're going to have believers baptism repeatedly mentioned. And you're going to see that those who are baptized respond joyfully to the gospel in obedience in baptism. Look at 18, chapter 18 of Acts. We see the same pattern here in 18, verse 4, down to verse 8. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. That's important. Testifying to the Jews that the Messiah, the Christ, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed first and were baptized second. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. I have many in the city who are my people. Now, you see the same pattern here. They believed and then they were baptized. They were baptized after they had heard the gospel and personally trusted in it. That's the case because that is the first command and the sign that's given to Christ's followers. They will testify to their faith through obedience. They'll testify that Jesus is not only their savior, but he is their Lord and their master. And these Gentiles understood this. They understood the gospel. They trusted in Christ and they obeyed his commands and they were baptized. Belief in, in, in the gospel always precedes obedience to the gospel. Belief in the gospel always precedes obedience to the gospel. And it does so because that is the promise and the power of the new covenant that we have been given. Look at Ezekiel 36. My servant David shall be king over them. I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 37. Go to chapter 36. That's a good one too, though. 36, 24, I apologize. I told you my wife's not here. I'm like incomplete this morning. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the power of this promise here. When we baptize people, this is what we're displaying. We have a new spirit. We have a new heart. And his spirit is working in our new heart to change us as a result of the gospel. That is what makes us want to be obedient. Faith in Jesus and his death and his burial and resurrection will always produce this, this joyful desire for obedience in the Christian. That's why we are baptized. It comes as a result of the gospel, because of the gospel. Obedience doesn't grant faith, but it always produces the fruit of faith. It always does. That obedience is drawn out of a forgiven heart. That's what we're seeing in that that great new covenant. It's drawn out of a forgiven heart, and it's an act of thanksgiving, an act of worship. And it comes with many kinds of blessings. One one particular blessing that it comes with in baptism and baptism testifies to rather is that we are now part of the covenant community of forgiven sinners. It testifies to that blessing when we testify to others that we are now in Christ. We are now brought into the church because of his saving grace. But baptism apart from conversion can't bestow that blessing on anyone. That's why infant baptism is so sad and misleading. Here's what it does. It creates a false hope in many. They may even attribute it to their salvation. And it may also more likely do this, though. It may allow adult converts to live a life of active disobedience to Christ's command to be baptized upon conversion. Think about that. You're baptized as a child, an infant. You're converted as an adult, but you never follow Christ's command to be baptized, to testify to the power of the gospel. You don't think God will discipline that? That is ungrateful to neglect this 
command. Obedience to Christ, saints, is the sign that you are born again. You are baptized out of that sign, out of obedience. You're baptized because there's a new heart. The baptism doesn't actually save. It doesn't place you in the church. It's through obedience to Christ as your Lord and Savior that you're now now able to rejoice in knowing that you are in the community of the saints. Now, let me give you a couple of things to think about here. In baptism, in baptism, we are we are displaying through this order that's given, this mode that's given. We're displaying the very power of the gospel itself that must be proclaimed for the glory of God and for the good of those who also witness it. I think the mode and the pattern of believing and then obedience is critical to understanding why we do this. When you look at the other passages about the household baptisms, every one of them has the same pattern. There's personal belief and then it leads to obedience And that comes before baptism. There's a personal desire to be baptized, to testify to the salvation. And the reason for that is the power of the gospel is going to be displayed. And that's the first thing that a Christian wants to do. You want to testify to the world that Jesus saved you. That's your desire. The power of the gospel is revealed to us. And then we want to display it to the world around us. Look at Colossians 2. Let me end by going here. Colossians 2. The power of the gospel that's revealed here is what we testify to in baptism. In 2.11, in him, Jesus, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When Christ was cut off on the cross, when our sins fell upon him, God's wrath was poured out on him. He was cut off. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we were baptized into his death, and then we were raised with him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You've been resurrected. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, how by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He did this for us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, in him. Verses 12 and 13 say that we were spiritually dead But now, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, now we are raised to newness of life. We have resurrected life. The life of Christ is at work in us. Verses 14 and 15 say that we were guilty of sinning against God, but now we are forgiven by Christ's work. Baptism illustrates both of these truths. It illustrates that we are in a new union with Christ, our Savior, and it illustrates that we have a new position in Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to us. And then we see the result of that, the result of this righteousness, this new position that we have in God's sight. We see what it produces in us. Look at chapter 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then he says, put to death these things, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, in other words, you're not enslaved to them anymore. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Then look at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, he goes on to say. See, it's clear in three that we were all rebels, but something's changed. We've been brought into union with Christ. We have a new position of his righteousness imputed to us. We have a new standing in God's presence. And it results in something. We are no longer rebels any longer. We are now longing to be obedient from the heart to our Lord and our Master. And in baptism, that's what you're illustrating. You're illustrating your submission to Jesus as your gracious Savior and your Lord and Master. Baptism is a glorious illustration of the gospel. It allows you to joyfully testify to the power of Christ Jesus' sacrifice. That sacrifice that reconciled your soul to a holy God and brought you into an eternal union with him that can never, ever be broken. And there's power in it that will transform your life. It will shape you. And conform you more and more progressively into the image of your Savior himself. So if, if you have been baptized, I hope you're rejoicing in this glorious blessing and honor that was bestowed on you. That you were able to testify to it to others. Let the upcoming baptisms serve you. Let these upcoming baptisms help you reflect on the confession that you made when you were baptized. And let that service and their testimonies renew the joy that you once had when you were first identifying with Christ in a public way. You testified that he is your all-sufficient Savior. Let that wash over you as they are plunged into the water. And you see the testimony of the gospel once again. Let that service help you recall your humble commitment that you made to follow Jesus as your Lord. In every area of your life. Let these truths wash over you today. If you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized. If you have not been baptized because you have yet to trust in Jesus and repent of your sins. Let me just end with this. Today is the day of salvation. Look in faith to Christ. Trust in his accomplishments and his work. His salvation. And turn from your sins and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words are true. They are comforting. They are convicting. Lord, we have all grown cold at times in our walk with you. 
It is because we have forgotten this commitment that we made, this confession that we proclaimed before others. And I pray that you would use this message and these truths to renew that in us. Revive that in our hearts. We need this, God. It is so easy to become complacent in a comfortable place. Lord, please convict us of that. Teach us to respond with joy once again as we did at the beginning. Show us the joy in those who will come forward in obedience to you as a result of salvation. Let us see that and let us be amazed by that and encourage that and help stoke that. And Lord, in doing so, please stir a fire up in us that will not be put out easily. Lord, I pray all this for the glory of your name, for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen.